Welcome to the Unplugged Podcast with Debo Zarco, episode 39. Hello, hello, and welcome to another awesome week of the Unplugged Podcast, where we unplug from status quo and shift the paradigm from head to heart by co-creating a more passionate, compassionate, loving, and interconnected world. Here you are again, the place where you get to hear inspiring interviews with athletes, activists, authors, artists, yogis, and everyday paradigm busters as we journey together into the infinite depths of the human heart to remember through the power of story who we all are at the core of our beings. And I am your status quo crushing host, Debo Zarco, welcoming you to your weekly dose of authentic expression and open-hearted inspiration. I want to ask you to start this week by imagining being born into a world with parents who are fully awake and have already unplugged from the matrix. This means that they've crushed status quo in favor of a simpler life of deep meaning and purpose. Now, can you imagine the potential of who you could become right from the very start of your life? Imagine. Can you imagine what it would be like to to have not been indoctrinated into the cultural coma of conformity and separation? Can you imagine the liberation in growing up to a life where authentic expression was celebrated, selflessness was cultivated, simplicity trumped consumption, purpose was nurtured, and love for all living beings was the modus operandi? Can you imagine being brought up in a household where you were taught about what's really important? like leaving the world a better place because of how much you care. Imagine. Life would be so different. The world would be so different. Now this week's Unplugged podcast guest is a truly special man who was born into such a household. Ocean Robbins is the son of well-known author John Robbins. And he's a beautiful man who has gifted his life to the world in a way that is not only leaving it a better place, he's also changing many lives along the way. And to give you a better idea of how special this man is, I'm going to read a few paragraphs from an essay titled, My Learning Journey, written by Ocean a few years back. After fleeing Eastern Europe in fear of persecution for his Jewish heritage, my dad's father succeeded materially, beyond his wildest dreams. He created an ice cream business that flourished, known as Baskin Robbins, or 31 Flavors. It became the world's largest ice cream company. My dad grew up swimming in an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool, eating enormous amounts of ice cream, and inventing new flavors. My grandfather worked almost round the clock building the business. So my dad hardly knew his father, except at the corporate headquarters where he was pushed from his earliest childhood to one day join his father in running the hugely successful company. 
But rather than commit his life to inventing a 30-second flavor, my dad decided to work for the growth of compassion and healing in his life and in the world. He walked away from the company and from any access to his family's ice cream fortune and moved with my mom to a tiny island off the coast of British Columbia where they built a one-room log cabin, grew most of their food, and lived on less than $500 per year. I was born in that cabin with few material possessions and a very simple lifestyle. I grew up monetarily poor, but rich in many other ways. I had all my basic needs met. Clean air, clean water, time with my mom and dad, and beautiful nature all around me. As I grew up, a deep love of nature and the earth emerged within me. Then, in the 1980s, when I was 10, my family moved to California And my dad began working on a book called Diet for a New America, which was one of the first books to show how our food choices affect not just our health and happiness, but also the future of life on earth. His book became a runaway bestseller, and he began appearing on most of the major national U.S. talk shows. The media had a lot of fun with my dad's story, calling him the rebel without a cone. They said he was the ice cream heir who walked away from a life of sure riches because he wanted to make a difference in the world and tagged him the prophet of nonprofit. His work made him something of a celebrity. There were 20,000 letters a year pouring in from enthusiastic readers and the response to my dad's work brought financial security to our security to our family. Inspired by his example and feeling blessed by tremendous emotional and spiritual support from both my parents, I felt that I wanted to give something to the world and to do something to reach out to my generation. At the age of 15, recognizing that the planetary biosystem was deteriorating rapidly under the impact of human activities and that my generation seemed too cynical or too distracted to meet these challenges, a friend and I started a project that would become YES, Youth for Environmental Sanity, a nonprofit organization that connects inspires, and collaborates with young changemakers in building thriving, just, and sustainable ways of life for all. Our goal was to to help young people make a difference in the world. We organized a national tour, speaking to school assemblies about the environment and what our peers could do to make a difference. My friend Ryan and I found other enthusiastic young people to join us, raised tens of thousands of dollars, and launched YES as an organization. The response to my dad's work opened many doors for us, as people who were inspired by his books would ask how they could help, and he would often encourage them to support YES, or to bring us to their communities. Fueled by this support, tremendous passion, and a lot of hard work, YES reached half a million students in high schools in more than 40 U.S. states in the first half of the 1990s. As we continued our travels from city to city, experiencing the realities and struggles of many different kinds of communities, we kept broadening our definition of the environment to include people as well as the planet. We diversified our performance troupe, our organization, and our message. And I too was challenged to see how privileged I was in ways I had never recognized. I realized that I was coming of age as a white, heterosexual male with a U.S. passport and financial sufficiency and with all kinds of opportunities available for me and my work. Even more significantly, I had loving parents who had always helped me believe in myself. 
Stepping out of what had always seemed normal to me gave me a fresh perspective on who and what I was. As I engaged with young people from a broad diversity of backgrounds, I was beginning an even deeper journey into my relationship with my own experience of privileged and the many questions and contradictions therein. Why did I have so many opportunities when billions of people were struggling to feed their families and when tens of thousands of American young people were living below the poverty line? In a world with a vast wealth divide, economic resources give certain people more power, more influence, and more freedom than others. Sweatshop conditions and the treatment of farm workers are directly linked to lowering the costs of goods, which in a consumeristic culture means that some form of violence and exploitation is linked to most of what we consume. So how did I fit in with all of that? I didn't want to be defined by the madness of the times, but at the same time, I was part of larger systems and institutions, and I was impacted by them in ways I did not intend. The more I learned about the realities of oppression and injustice, the more confused I was. I knew that I had love and many other gifts to share, share with the world. From the age of 10, my daily prayer had been quoting from St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Surely educating my peers about the environment and inspiring them to make a difference uh, with their lives was an embodiment of this prayer. But the road I was on was slowly teaching me that there is a world of difference between being an instrument of peace and being on a crusade to teach the world. I used to think that there must be some universal message that if everyone heard it would transform humanity. Over time, I was coming to think that human needs are as diverse as human experiences, and that sometimes it is a greater service to listen than to speak. I was beginning to listen and learn. What is clear to me is that we don't get to choose most of what happens to us. In my own life, my twin's premature birth, subsequent special needs, and the theft of our savings from a Ponzi scheme I have been stretched physically, emotionally, and financially in ways I'd never imagined. Some share of tragedy comes into every life, it seems. It is most likely that a lot of pain I will experience still awaits me, and yet I do get to decide how I respond to it. Perhaps life is mostly about what we do with whatever is given to us. I used to pray to God to have things go the way I wanted them to go. Sometimes I still do. But increasingly, I find myself praying for the strength, the wisdom, and the patience to make the best of however things unfold around me. My favorite question to ask people right now, perhaps because it is so alive in my own life, is what has been a defining struggle or challenge in your life's journey, and how has your response to it helped you to grow in wisdom, faith, or compassion? In these times when there is so much suffering and so much struggle for so many, we each need to be asking ourselves how we can make the best of what is and striving to transform our own traumas and struggles into gifts for humanity. For in that transformation, I believe, lies the hope of the world. Now, Ocean and his father have since gone on to create the Food Revolution Network, which is a really powerful and very exciting online-based education and advocacy-driven initiative, and it's committed to healthy, sustainable, humane, and conscious food for everyone. 
and they've got over 100,000 members and uh, they also collaborate with many of the top food revolutionary leaders of our times. And the Food Revolution Network aims to empower individuals, build community, and transform food systems to support healthy people and a healthy planet. These two are tireless. Ocean and his father, John Robbins, are incredible change makers in today's times. And they are, their hearts are so dedicated to a cause that is so important in today's times. And with that, I am deeply honored to be able to share the inspiring words of a man who I respect so, so much. Ocean Robbins is truly a gift to the world, and I hope that he inspires the best in you to shine like never before. Ocean, I want to, first of all, I want to thank you for the honor of speaking with me today. I have been such a... I don't know what word to use, but I've been so deeply inspired by you, your work, your father's work. And honestly, it is it is a true honor. My heart is just actually just burst wide open just speaking with you. So here, I have to do my gushing first. That's just, <laughs> that's my natural state. I can't help it. <laughs> but I want to start with a big question. And the big question is, you, you're one of these, one of the rare few people on this planet who was blessed to be born into a compassionate family that completely defied status quo, that rejected the cultural trance of today's world. And wow, like, oh, I mean, what a gift that is. And, you know, like I've mentioned already, I've been so deeply inspired by your work, by your father's work, and by your collaborative effort on the uh, on the Food Revolution Network and how passionate you both are about making the world a better place. Passionate and dedicated. And I want to start with that kind of as our as our launching point. And I'd be grateful if you could share your journey towards the work you're doing today to just wake people up to the, to the truths about our broken food system. And I know that you've had a passionate activist journey all your life. If you could just... Just share the, uh, I know that's a big question, if you could just share what seems the most uh, significant and who you are today, that'd be great. I'll, I'm going to start with a little intergenerational history. So my grandfather started Baskin Robbins Ice Cream Company. My dad was groomed from early childhood to one day join in running that company. He had an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool in the backyard. He had 31 flavors of ice cream in the freezer at all times. His father manufactured and sold more ice cream than any human being who's ever lived. And my dad probably ate more ice cream than any kid who's ever lived. Um, then uh, as he got a little older, he was actually eventually offered that chance to join in the family company. And remarkably enough to many people, he said no. And he walked away from huge amounts of fame and fortune and a path that was practically paved with gold as well as ice cream to follow, as we jokingly say, his own rocky road. And he ended up uh, walking away because his uh, uncle, Bert Baskin, was dying of heart disease. His father was suffering from a lot of health ailments that are typical of people who consume large amounts of sugar and dairy products and animal products in general and then the standard American diet. He was aware that an ice cream cone isn't going to kill anybody, but that the more ice cream we eat, 
the less healthy we're going to be. And he didn't want to dedicate his life to selling a product that was going to make people sick or contribute to sickness for more people. He wanted to help contribute to health. So he walked away not only from the company, but from any access to the family wealth and moved with my mom to a little island off the coast of Canada where they built a one-room log cabin, grew most of their own food, lived very simply, practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day, and named their kid Ocean. That's me. So I was born uh, in a very alternative lifestyle to parents who um, had chosen love and uh, simple living over the materialistic fast track and the pursuit of the American dream of unlimited consumption. They were actually trying to find a deeper dream of unlimited compassion. I ended up um, coming of age myself when uh, in my teen years, my dad was becoming a best-selling author. He wrote a book called Diet for New America, and it inspired millions of people to look at their food choices as an opportunity to make a difference in the world. The media had a lot of fun with his story. They called him the rebel without a cone, among other things. And I was inspired. Uh, here were millions of people being touched by my dad's work, writing letters saying it had changed their lives. I wanted to see what could I do to reach out to my generation. So at 16, I founded a nonprofit organization called Youth for Environmental Sanity, or YES. And we organized this national tour speaking to schools about the environment and food choices and how youth could make a difference in the world. We reached more than 600,000 students and then eventually started focusing on these transformational leadership gatherings for young change makers from over 65 countries. We organized these week-long events for people who wanted to change the world, and we wanted to help them to become more sustainable and grounded and effective in their work and to have consistency between their means and their ends, between their values and their lifestyles. So uh, we saw so many activists who were burning out or who were caught up in trying to change the world out there without realizing that actually often it was their own inner conflict that was sabotaging their efforts. And so we wanted to help people create more integrity and congruency in their lives and in their relationships as they tried to change things for the better on the planet. I directed that organization for 20 years and then I decided that I really wanted to focus in more directly working with my dad um, on this food issue because I realized that Food is something everybody shares. We all eat. We're going to live. And what we eat literally becomes us. It is our most intimate communion with the web of life. And when we turn our act of food consumption into a commodity that we are consuming for the lowest possible price and the highest possible short-term pleasure without regard for the web of life or the human beings who are involved in its production or the animals who may have been involved in its production, our choices come back to haunt us. We are toxifying our bodies as we are toxifying our planet with the toxic food system. What I uh, realized as I delved deeper into this was that the toxic food system is crippling our economy. It is bankrupting families and lives. It is causing millions of deaths. It is causing suffering to a majority of the people in the United States today and it is completely preventable. We have the potential to radically alter our lives, our vitality, our energy level, how well we sleep, how long we live, how, how well we live with changes in diet. Now, of course, no healthy diet is a panacea for everything. There are many factors and we're all gonna die and we're all gonna suffer in this life. No one gets out alive. 
but we might as well live as well as we can. We might as well be as happy and fulfilled and healthy as we can. And nutritional science is very clear. The majority of the diseases in the United States today are caused by lifestyle. A majority of the medical spending that we are, that's crippling our economy, that's 19% of U.S. gross domestic product today, could be eliminated with changes in diet. So we can apply what we know. We could do so much better, and we can help kids not have to suffer from diabetes. We can help elders not have to suffer from Alzheimer's. We can help people of every age suffer less from cancer and heart disease. And these are real issues that affect real lives. So I'm thrilled now to be working with my dad as the CEO of the Food Revolution Network, which we founded together, and to have the opportunity to touch people's lives and to spread the truth. Because, uh, you know, we do not have to be victims of a toxic food culture. We can become agents of change in our own personal lives, in our families, in our communities, and on this planet. And when we do, our whole world gets brighter. And it's so apparent how passionate you are. Like I'm, I'm sure that you've told this story probably many times, but it, it, it hasn't detracted from your passion. It's really, really evident. And I've heard you and your father over the last couple of years with the interviews in the, in the Food Revolution Network, and they're honest. That's what's so beautiful is that there's just, there is no bypassing the truth whatsoever. They're honest, they're raw, they're real. And there's some of the truths are quite shocking, but at the same time, there's, you both provide so much hope and they're empowering as well. There's so much power that we can take back just with our choices. Mm -hmm. And I'm really grateful that you've, you know, that you've brought that up. Thank you. And, you know, I think another part of my inspiration is circling back to my grandfather, because when he was in his early seventies, he had severe diabetes severe heart disease and high blood pressure issues and substantial weight excess. Um, and his doctors told him he was a very sick man and he likely didn't have long to live and he'd have to be taking um, medications, substantial medications for the rest of his life, which he hated. Um, and his doctor then handed him a copy of my dad's book, Diet for New America, and suggested he read it. My grandfather did uh, and he made some changes in his diet and he got some tremendous results. So he made more changes and he got more results. Before long, he had given up ice cream and he had reduced his meat consumption substantially. And he was eating a lot more fruits and vegetables and fresh foods. And in the course of that, he lost 30 pounds. He got off his diabetes medications. His golf game improved seven strokes. He became able to walk several, I mean, four or five miles, which he did every day for the rest of his life. And he got another 15 plus good, healthy years. And uh, at the end of his life, when the time eventually did come, he was now in his early 90s. And he, he told my dad and I on his deathbed, he said, thank God some of us lived long enough to learn a few new things. You know, he, he told my dad, I thought you were crazy when you left Baskin Robbins, but I'm so glad you followed your own star. And that I got to be blessed, one of the people who was blessed by your work. And... You know, I don't know if you can imagine what it, kind of um, strength it takes for a man who's dedicated his life to selling ice cream, who's achieved the American dream in that field, to then shift his course and honor the renegade son who walked away. But I feel so touched by that and so grateful that my grandpa was able to be positively impacted 
by this work. Uh, I think our family has had quite a journey. Um, we know what it's like to have a whole lot of momentum in a certain direction, and we know what it's like to change course, and we know what the benefits are that can happen when you change course. In my own life, I've always been vibrantly healthy, pretty much. I, I ran a marathon when I was 10, set school records in elementary school for chin-ups and push-ups, and now I have more energy than I know what to do with. And uh, I know that a healthy diet and healthy lifestyle is a part of it. So, uh, so we want to help other people to have the benefit of learning from what our family has experienced and knowing what's possible. Hmm. And I, I think, you know, it's, it's your proof too that, well, you actually mentioned uh, that our food literally becomes us. And I think there's like one of the things that we as a culture don't speak about is the spiritual component of food. And of course, if we're going to be putting genetically modified foods, foods that were created from suffering and, you know, slaughter and fear into us, that's, that becomes us. That literally does become us. And when we live a compassionate life and we make compassionate choices and compassionate towards others as well as to ourselves, it really does enhance vitality in life. And you're just, you're a perfect example of that, especially growing up in a family that was a cultural, you know, that came from a, like you said, a cultural renegade family. And it's just, it's beautiful to see. I mean, I look at your your smile. People will only be able to hear the uh, the podcast, the audio version, but I'm looking and I just see a man who's exuding so much compassion and so much warmth. And they say that um, the eyes are the windows to the soul. And I feel like I see a very gentle soul on the other side. And it's quite, it's quite evident that your food choices have made a significant difference in your spiritual connection as well. Um, and on that note, actually, I, I was watching, uh, I've been doing a lot of research on you, I've been snooping around about you, and I saw this really beautiful interview, and I'm just going to quote something that you said. You said that your, your life energy, your spirit, your passion, your creativity is going into making a difference in the world, organizing people, challenging assumptions that are destructive to their values, and helping people to feel a sense of liberation on their path. And when I heard that, I actually got goosebumps. And when I get goosebumps, that's my physiological confirmation that it's touched me on a very deep soul level. And, you know, I personally, I mean, one of the reasons why I'm doing this project is because I believe that we are all here to leave the world a better place than we found it. And we're just indoctrinated in this culture that, that takes us away from that realization. And then, you know, if we're conscious enough, we remember that that's our path. Um, I'm just wondering if you could expand on that statement, like what it means to you and just explain how the sense of liberation that you, um, guide people towards is waking them up to a more interconnected way of life. Hmm. Well, I believe that we all have some purpose for being on this earth. I don't think any of us is here purely by accident. And I believe that part of the quest of life, the hero's journey, if you will, is to uncover that purpose and live it. And some of us feel clear about a sense of purpose, but most people feel a little confused about it, at least on a day-to-day -day level. However, I think that deep down, there's a part of us that knows, that knows when we're on track and when we're not, that knows when we're doing what we're here for and when we're not. We can delude ourselves, we can confuse ourselves, we can get lost in the details. But 
when we truly feel that we are living a purposeful life, something lights up. And it, it might light up in, in small moments. If you tell someone you love them and you feel connected to them and you feel like your expression mattered and they light up and smile and you feel good inside, maybe you're on your purpose right at that moment. You know, if you eat a bite of something nourishing and you know it's good for you and you feel good in your tummy because you know you're eating something that's good for you, maybe you're on your purpose at that moment. Your purpose shows up in very small ways sometimes. It can also show up in big ways sometimes. You start an organization and you get your first big grant, you know? It's like, yes, I'm on purpose, you know? <laughs> sometimes we get these affirmations, um, but sometimes they're really small. You know, maybe you see a kid scared and you help them cross the street safely, you know? You know, maybe you just help somebody out who's, who's hurting. Um, maybe you take care of yourself. Maybe you go to a yoga class. Um, you know, but, but whatever it is, th there are so many opportunities in life to express our values. And when we do, I think some part of us lights up because, you know, you think about a car that's got to be in alignment. If you ever had a car that needed a front end alignment, it's like it gets better gas mileage when the front end is aligned because the wheels are all going in the same direction, you know, and the motor and the wheels and the whole system are aligned and synchronized, right? But when you have things a little off, you're wasting energy and you're creating needless friction, and everything's going to break down sooner. And a lot of times I feel like in our lives, something's a little off or a lot off. And we get a whole lot of, we have to work a whole lot harder to get the same distance. Um, and we may not even end up liking where we end up at all. So um, my interest is in how we, I, I can, as best I can, attune to the current of my life. I think of life often as a river. And I say, you know, where's the current? And if I'm, my goal is the ocean, no pun intended, um, if my goal is to get to the ocean, I also realize that the rivers meander and they go from right to left and up and down and all, well, not really up, but they go all around along the way, always choosing the path of least resistance to get to their destination. And similarly, you, life may not look like a beeline towards what you think your destination might be. And you might only have some vague sense that the ocean even exists because you don't really know where you're headed. Eventually, you are going to return to, in my view, the oneness of everything, which is what the ocean is, right? But along the way, you don't know how long it's going to take. And you don't know where there's rapids. And you don't know where there's slow pools. But here's what you do know. There is a current. And it is going there. And if you can uh, synchronize with that current, if you can find where that current is, you will move most expeditiously. So the goal of paddling, I think, in life is often more about steering to stay in the current than it is about forcibly pushing our way to get somewhere. When we can align with that current, we'll go a lot faster and everyone around us will be like, wow, look how fast you're going. And yet it's effortless sometimes. Now, there are moments when you've got to paddle really hard to stay in the current or to stay afloat, not get tumbled upside down in a big rapid, right? But ultimately, I think the art of life or the game of life is how to, be, to read the river and to stay in touch. And so, so my challenge to, to this audience is, what is your river? What is your current? What is the course that's calling you deeply? And when you are in that course, you will feel satisfied at some deep level. And you may at times feel frustrated because you're in an eddy and, you know, realizing that you feel frustrated is really important. Um, and realizing, you know, that frustration is actually often the mother of invention it propels you to say, you know what, this isn't okay. The status quo doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. um, but when you do move into that current, you'll feel a grace. And often things will open. Life will happen in ways that are miraculous. 
That is so true. And that is such a beautiful metaphor too. As, as you were speaking, I was actually applying it to my own life. And I'm thinking, yes, that's exactly the way it works. The slow pools, the eddies, sometimes you're tumbled over. But yes, as, as long as you have faith that the current is taking you in the right direction, life is always really magical. That's Thank you for sharing that. That is so beautiful. And I like the the car the car wheels out of alignment too. That's, <laughs> that's perfect. <laughs> I know that feeling. I know what it feels like to be in alignment though too. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a liberating way to live your life. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go to, I'm going to read something from your, well, I'm going to actually, your website bio, I was reading through it and it's really, really apparent that activism has played a role throughout your entire life, which is no surprise considering the parenting that you, the upbringing that you had, but your, your activism is really exceptional. And you've already touched on this about how many activists burn out because they don't heal themselves first so that they're they're projecting their inner wounds on the um on the outer world and it really makes for ineffective activism you're you've you seem to have gotten it right right from the start is that you come from a place of interconnection rather than that place of separation and what i'm um what i what i'm curious about is what it means to you to be more of a spiritually motivated activist and can you can you just speak a little bit about the tireless work that you've been doing to raise conscious awareness for the interconnection of all life in this world that is that that's so separate? Because you're you know I mean you you've focused on I mean you've mentioned the environment, animals, humans. You haven't left anybody out, which is you know that's something that's common with a lot of activists. I mean I've been an animal activist for. A lot of my life and I've gone through the evolutionary process of being that angry activist to this more spiritually motivated activist where I don't exclude anybody but there is a process where we move from separation to interconnection and I'd love if you could just talk about that yeah well I first of all would certainly not say that I've always gotten it right um, I think that uh, I've always been doing the best I knew how and uh, and trying to do things differently than the status quo, because I could see that the norm had gotten us where we are, and we had to come up with some radical new ways of living and being on this earth if we were going to have any hope of a of a vibrant and positive future for humanity. If we keep going on the course we're headed, we're, we're going to end up where we're going. And um, when I look at a lot of the trends in data today, from climate change to deforestation to topsoil erosion to the buildup of armaments on Earth, um, the number, um, you know, the, the stretch, the, the growth of human population and the strain on the Earth's resources to sustain that, um, there are a lot of trends that I find alarming and concerning and, and frightening. Um, a lot of young people I know are not even sure if they want to have kids when they grow up because they're not sure if this is a safe world to have kids in. So I think there is no denying that we are up against some, some pretty massive um, problems um, and issues in the world. And um, in that context, uh, little tweaks on the status quo aren't going to cut it. Um, we need to fundamentally rethink our relationship to the earth and humanity. Um, and I agree with you that uh, it doesn't work to work in silos anymore, to say I'm an animal rights activist and I'm just going to fight for animal rights and leave human beings out of the equation. 
or to say I'm a social justice activist, I'm just going to fight for social justice and leave rich people or animals or the earth out of the equation. It's all connected. And we have to find ways of working and living on this earth that uh, build a world that is, that is at least comprehensive in its vision. Um, and so um, I think one of the beautiful things about food and my focus there is that we really do, do see how these issues intersect at a profound level. You know, and I just want to highlight the social justice dimension of food for a second, because there's a lot of foodies who are thinking about food as if it's some kind of healthy food as an elitist luxury. And, and the reality is that we have a, a real stratification where a lot of the natural and healthy foods are being consumed by the wealthy in the United States today. And the, the uh, worst health outcomes are being borne by low-income communities of color. Uh, in America's inner cities, we often find um, dozens of liquor stores and no full-service grocery stores. We find people living on food stamps, and what they're using to buy with those food stamps is the foods that are available in the convenience stores in their communities, the 7-Elevens and so forth, which are chips and Coca-Cola and uh, you know junk food. And no wonder, then, that these communities have the highest rates of diabetes, obesity, heart disease, cancer often a seven to 10 year lower life expectancy. African-Americans in Harlem today have a lower life expectancy, African-American men, than, than they do, than, than people in Bangladesh do. Um, so we are facing a reality that the, the, the epicenter of the food crisis actually is impacting those who are the poorest. Meanwhile, farm workers are being forced to work extremely long hours for very low wages, um, and they're exposed to pesticides on the job on a daily basis. No wonder the life expectancy for farm workers in America is around 40, 45 to 50 years. Um, it's, a, it's a full 25 years less than the average American. And this is directly linked to the pesticide exposures on the job. Cancer rates are off the charts in these communities. And uh, meanwhile, worldwide, we've got uh, farmers losing their livelihood, losing their farms, because they are going, getting on the GMO treadmill with genetically modified organisms, and they're now buying, forced under contract to buy seeds from Monsanto uh, and other biotech companies uh, with promises of yields, and when they don't materialize, those farmers wind up uh, losing their farms because they have to keep buying these seeds and they can't afford it. So 250,000 farmers have committed suicide in India in just the last 20 years. And uh, you know, millions have lost their farms and their livelihoods and have gone into deep despair. Um, this is all connected. And when we choose to consume foods that are not part of the toxic food system, we are breaking out of all of that. When we choose to support with our lives, you know, farmers markets and community supported agriculture and local foods and real foods and growing our own foods and and uh, sharing food with friends and family and preparing our own food instead of buying it from McDonald's, you know, we are participating in what we call the food revolution. And it is touching farmers and it is touching the lives of farm workers and it is touching uh, the whole food system with love and care. It's meaning there's less pesticides in our environment. Obviously, it also means there's less pesticides in our bodies. Unfortunately, it does cost more right now to eat healthy food because junk food is subsidized to the tune of tens of billions of dollars. And because we have food systems that uh, actually make it so that, so that it's easier to buy Snickers than it is to buy spinach. So that it's easier 
to get crap at any 7-Eleven, any grocery store, but also any gas station than it is to get real food that's healthy for our bodies. That is changing. And consumer demand is helping change it. We've got a long way to go, but we need to increase access, we need to increase affordability, and we need to create systems that will make it easier for especially the most vulnerable to do the right thing. It's, it's shocking hearing, hearing the reality of this situation. And I know like I'm, I'm living in a, I actually had to exit the world somewhat. And I'm living in a small coastal community in, um, in British Columbia, where the movement against GMOs is really strong and really solid and really, uh, it's a real community effort. And people have really embraced the progressive, the more progressive mindset of permaculture and, uh, you know, locally grown foods. So farmers markets are huge out here and it just builds more community. And it's actually really beautiful to, to see this return to simplicity and this return to like vibrant health. Once again, where I'm living, it gives me a lot of hope for, for a future, at least here, you know, and I know that it's, it's harder in the cities, like you say, in these inner city uh, conditions where people buy their groceries at 7-Elevens and really there's nothing there that you can actually eat. Um, and one of the things like you mentioned about how these foods uh, cost a little bit more, but I was in a permaculture workshop and one of the things that they mentioned that I found was really, really profound is that, for instance, if we buy spinach, like for me, if I was to buy spinach that was imported from California and I paid a little bit more for spinach that was that was created, you know, that was grown here on the Sunshine Coast, mm -hmm. what I'm actually getting is I'm actually getting far more bang for the buck because of the nutrient density that is found in something that's locally grown as opposed to something that's imported. And that's something that um, people tend to forget as well. Um, but I mean, you just bring up so many, so many amazing points about food and its interconnection with the whole web of life. And I'm just wondering if you could just expand just a little bit more about what the Food Revolution Network is. Like, I'm quite familiar with it. I don't know if everybody out there listening is, but I want them to be. So if you could expand on what that, what it is more and how it came into creation with your dad, that would be great. I know you've kind of touched on it a little bit, um, but if you could just really like dig into it, let people know how powerful this movement is. I'd be grateful. Yeah. Well, I joined forces with my dad, uh, best-selling author John Robbins, uh, to launch the Food Revolution Network in 2012. And uh, so far, we've organized four summits where we brought together some of the top food experts on the planet and interviewed them and then shared their insights uh, for free with people online and over teleconference. And uh, we ended up, we've had over 240,000 people sign up for our summits so far. Um, we've also been organizing online courses and trainings and um, in-person river rafting adventures for people who want to get out in nature and play and splash um, and eat healthy food with other food revolutionaries. Um, and we also have an ongoing uh, newsletter and we, we promote education, ac action and opportunities and resources to help people to live the food revolution and to change our food systems. Um, and so and we have a blog and we have a Facebook page and we're experiencing a huge response to our work. We're experiencing that all over the planet, people are sick of being sick. People are 
fed up with toxic food and people are hungry for change. So um, the response has been enormous and deeply inspiring, honestly, um, to see how many people want to share with their friends and community and want to get informed themselves. Um, so we're still exploring ourselves how we can make the biggest impact and how we can not just help individuals to thrive, but change the conditions such that it makes it easier for everybody to thrive. You know, it shouldn't, our kids shouldn't have to swim upstream to get a healthy meal, you know, and, and suffer from diabetes and obesity if they don't. You know, uh, we shouldn't have junk food companies marketing to kids. Uh, well, and, and, then, and then have our government subsidizing the production of those products, getting in front of those kids when we know it's making them sick. You know, we have, we have uh, one in three American children is expected to get diabetes in their lifetime. Uh, we have rates of obesity that are now, you know, approaching 30% in the United States. More than half the people in the country are overweight. And this isn't just an aesthetic thing. This isn't just about um, appearance. This is about health. This is that weight equals pressure on the body that makes it harder to move, harder to exercise. That 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 leads to that also often is is linked to blood flow being decreased, which which makes it harder for a person to thrive, but also increases the chances of heart disease. So, so what we're seeing now is, is and, and, and no, people think it's their fault, you know? People feel guilty or ashamed. And kids growing up without self-esteem, you know, with low self-esteem, getting teased by their peers. And it's not their fault. We have a system that is a trying very hard to addict us to junk food. And most of us are addicts to one extent or another. Sugar is in 80, added sugar is in 80% of the food sold in America's supermarkets. 80% of the products, added sugar. Added sugar is addictive like cocaine is addictive. The more you consume it, the more you want it. And your body gets biochemically attached to it. And this is why we have people drooling over the cake at birthday parties. I mean, of course it tastes good, but we've got a whole culture that reinforces the addiction to something that is toxic for us. Now, I'm not saying one cake is going to kill you or one ice cream cone, you know. Absolutely, we should have fun and play and celebrate. But here's the thing. Are we going to, are we, the quantity that we are consuming, the average American eats 150 pounds of added sugar per year. I mean, that quantity is leading directly to pounds on our bodies. And it's leading to spikes in blood sugar and, and driving our pancreas is crazy. And it's, it's toxifying us. So, We've got a toxic food culture and we've got systems that, that support it and reinforce it. And in that context, I think a food revolution is absolutely necessary. And a food revolution is happening. And that's the glorious thing. In the last 15 years, we've seen like a tenfold increase in farmers markets. We've seen a fivefold increase in organic food sales. We're seeing this dramatic rise in community-supported agriculture programs. One in three Americans, uh, American households now has a garden or a community garden. We, more millennials. There's been a, in the last five years, there's been a 63% increase in millennials uh, in the what's currently the 18 to 34 year old age range um, gardening. Wow. So we're seeing this major increase amongst young people getting interested in growing food and people of all ages. And I think that is an awesome thing to contemplate. 
because uh, the more of us that grow our food, the more connected we are to that food. And the more lovingly we're going to care for the earth and the more healthfully we're going to eat. There are studies showing that kids who are connected to growing food are more likely to eat that. Mm -hmm. You know, so we are, we are literally reweaving ourselves back into the web of life. We are reclaiming our food systems as a sacrament, as an act of communion with life instead of an act of defilement of our bodies and our planet. And I think that is a gorgeous reality. The food revolution is emergent. It is something you can participate in on any scale from taking one single step in your life to, uh, to becoming an activist. You don't have to get out there with a bunch of signs and scream and shout, though you can. Um, but you can also practice it with your knife and fork every day. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like that's the most powerful change maker of all. It's just making powerful choices that maintain that interconnection with the web of all life. Um, I want to, I want to bring up something that I heard you say in last year's food revolution summit, and it's about your twin boys and the challenges that you face with the fact that they were born autistic. And you and your father were interviewing one another. And it was such a beautiful interview. And I remember your father saying, he said something that was really profound. He says a lot of things that are really profound. But this one really struck me. He said, our greatest challenges can often be catalysts for our greatest strengths. Mm -hmm. And when I heard you speak about your boys and just how much love you have for them, I just... Uh, again, it just made me, <laughs> I have one of these like hearts that burst flings open really easily. So it just burst my heart open. And I'm just wondering, um, what have you learned about yourself and how have you become a better person as the father of two children with special needs? Well, um, you know, my grandfather started Baskin Robbins. My dad was a best-selling author is, but was when I was growing up. I founded a nonprofit organization at 16. And um, my wife and I, when we decided to have kids, uh, imagined that in this family legacy, they'd probably be saving the world by the time they were out of diapers. And somehow in the whole narrative of my family journey, um, I developed a bit of what um, I've come to call it a superiority complex, a belief that somehow, some way we were better than, and that life was about getting to the top, being the best in a hyper-competitive culture. Um, even though in my heart of hearts, I believe that everyone has value and everyone should be respected. There's some way in which I didn't, wasn't fully living that. Uh, my dad told me when I was growing up, that he loved me and he appreciated all my accomplishments and he would love me just as much if I was autistic. And I often heard that and was touched by that and thought it was very sweet, but it didn't really land until I had kids that were autistic. I have identical twins born in 2001 and they are my greatest teachers. They are sources of incredible love and beauty and joy, and they love who they are, and they love life, and they are gifts to the world and to those who know them. And they also struggle really hard with some things that come really easily to a lot of other people. 
And they are teaching me about the preciousness and the sacredness of all life and that everyone deserves love completely and totally, not for what we accomplish, not for even being so-called good people, but just because. Um, in that, my kids have also forced me to look at the ways that I've made my own self-respect and my own self-love conditional on my performance and the ways that I've driven myself, pushed myself to do more and accomplish more in order to try to prove that I'm okay. And I've come to the perspective that maybe our best accomplishments and our best contributions will come when we don't have anything to prove to anybody. When we actually know that we're okay and then we're motivated by something deeper. We don't have anything left to prove to anybody, but we do have something left to give to somebody. And um, so I've, I've come to the, the perspective that my greatest wholeness and my greatest integrity and my greatest service will be born out of a place of deep, profound self-love that includes the places that are brilliant and the places that are lost and confused. That includes the places that, um, that know the way forward and act effectively to get there and the places that don't. And when I hold all of that, when I hold what I know and what I don't know, my clarity and my confusion, my certainty and my lostness, I'm actually more real. My humanity is deeper. And truth be told, my wisdom is deeper. Because knowing what we don't know is one of the keys to wisdom. And having curiosity is one of the keys to learning. And learning is absolutely what gets us to more wisdom. Um, so my kids are... Um, doing really well. We've learned from them about uh, autism a lot. And one of the things we've learned about autism, I think, is also a lesson for human nature, which is that um, with autistic com the autistic community, the conventional treatment is to try to train them to behave differently. Um, but we've learned that autism is, to our eyes, more about um, overstimulation and overwhelm and it's a nervous system that needs um, needs a lot of kindness and respect and special care. And that um, when our children, um, when we join them in their world, when we celebrate them for who they are, instead of trying to make them be who we think they should be, we discover that they have gifts we never could have imagined. Not just in, to, to manifest in their own lives, but also for us. Um, I'll just tell a quick story of that. Uh, my son River likes to he has at times in his life liked to chew on things. He used to chew on Barbie doll feet quite a bit. And one day he was, I was with him and he was chewing on a Barbie foot. And instead of trying to yank it out of his mouth and worrying about how this kid would ever have a dating life if he kept chewing on Barbie feet <laughs> and worrying that uh, he was absorbing toxic chemicals because this plastic was probably made in China, I decided to join him. So sitting across the room from him, I pick up a Barbie and I start chewing on her foot. At this point, River was 10 years old, and he had never up to that point in his life made eye contact with me. But at that moment, he looked up at me, right in the eyes, and he smiled. And he just stared right in my eyes, and he started beaming at me. And I could almost hear him thinking, oh, my God, he finally figured out how cool this is. There is intelligent life on this planet. <laughs>
So then he gestures for me to come closer. His Barbie has two feet. He's inviting me to chew on the other foot on his Barbie. So then I come over and I'm chewing on his Barbie foot. Now we're like four inches apart, beaming in each other's eyes, looking in each other's eyes, just falling in love together, chewing on Barbie feet. And at that moment, I realized that when I try to control my kid and make him be what I think he should be, then we get in a power struggle. And his sense of self-determination or even destiny depends in his world on his sovereignty, which he needs to resist me in order to manifest. But when I join him in his world, when I, when I meet him where he is, we find connection. And from that connection, we can go places together and we can do things together that touch both our lives. Our boys today are big fans of the food revolution. They, um, they are passionate advocates for healthy living. They ask for more vegetables at every meal. <laughs> they're, they're, um, and they're, River told me recently, he said, I'm proud of you. And I said, why? He said, I'm proud of you because you're making people's lives better. He said, I miss you sometimes because you work really long hours. But I'm proud of you because I know you're doing something that matters. Okay, I had goosebumps through the whole story. And there were times when I could feel myself welling up. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Wow. Well, I think that this is like, this is a perfect opportunity to just kind of ease on into your thoughts about what a life of purpose and meaning looks like. It sounds like you've expressed quite a bit of it already, but if you could just expand on that, that would be awesome. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I think there are more than 7 billion parts to play in the healing of our world. It's more than 7 billion people on this planet. I think that whatever pains and struggles we've known, uh, as well as whatever gifts and blessings we've been given, they prepare us perfectly for what is ours to do now. I know a lot of people who feel like, God, I could give so much if I only didn't have this burden, this pain, if I hadn't been abused in my childhood, if I hadn't, you know, didn't have to struggle with money. I didn't have kids with special needs or, you know, if I didn't have this injury, if I had someone who loved me, you know, unconditionally, if, if I, it, there's so many reasons why we struggle and hurt in life and uh, why we can feel that life is not fair to us. Um, but here's the thing. Um, every struggle and pain we've ever known is part of us now. I never would have guessed that having autistic children would be my greatest teacher, would make me more human, would make me more humble, would make me a deeper and better human being, would give me more love, would help deepen my love for myself and for all humanity. I never would have guessed that it would be perhaps even fundamental to my life's purpose. I wouldn't have wished it on myself or anyone else, but here I am and I'm grateful. Um, and um, I have a friend who's helping people with eating disorders. Had she not been through the struggle of eating disorders in her life, she wouldn't understand what her clients are dealing with and she wouldn't have unlocked some of the keys that can help her help people. So you never know what your pains are going to be or what, what you're going to be able to make of them. But uh, when you are in dark nights of the soul, when you do feel alone or lost and bereft, and to some extent we all do, um, I think you get to ask, 
what can I do with this that somehow, some way it might be of service to my love, my service, people I care for? Um, and how can we use what happens to us on behalf of what we love? When we're in the presence of pain, be it our own or someone else's, we have, I think, at one level, a very simple choice. Do we shrink away or do we expand? Because if we shrink away from every source of pain, every source of every place that hurts, we're going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. If we expand to say, you know what, my heart is big enough to hold this, I may not be able to fix it. I may not be, may not be able to solve it, but at least I can love through it. Have a love big enough to hold it then our heart gets bigger and our life gets bigger and our world gets bigger and we have the capacity perhaps to make a contribution. I think that uh, living a life of purpose means using what we've got on behalf of what we love. And that is the hero's journey and the heroine's journey of our times in a world beset by enormous suffering and pain question isn't how do we avoid suffering, but the question may be how do we make less suffering and more love. Uh, and each of us has our own answer to that, our own way of living that. And we're going to stumble and fall. We're going to get hurt and we're going to hurt others. But hopefully we can learn each step of the way. And hopefully we can get better at being true to our own hearts. I'm not often left speechless, but... <laughs> You're leaving me kind of like, like choked up and speechless on a number of occasions. I'm, your words are so wise. They're so wise. They're so beautiful and they're so deep, and it's really evident that you really do have belief in the human spirit. You have pure belief in the human spirit, and you know one of the things that I think is so important for. For, for everybody who's listening and just what well, just for all of us is to be inspired by others and inspiration is what gives us permission to access that deeper spiritual part within ourselves that is that wants to make the world a better place that wants to leave the world a better place that wants to leave a legacy and we're just like this is like another great opportunity to just kind of slide into my next question and that's if you were to invite listeners to do just one thing in their life that would enhance their lives and enrich their lives in a way that would connect them with that place where they, you know, where they're inspired to be who they truly are authentically so that they leave a world a better place. What would you, what would you offer them? Mm. Well, first thing I want to say is that um, I don't think there is any one-size-fits-all answer to any question. Um, I would say um, at the core level, we each need to follow the beat of our own drummer to find what are our values in our own conscience and do our best to live in integrity with them. Um, but I will give a couple specific suggestions. And one is ask yourself the question, what do I love? And what makes me come alive? And how can I do more about what I love and what makes me come alive? Um, number two, since I focus on food, uh, it's only one of so many places where we can make an impact and make conscious choices. But I will say that um, 
if you reclaim every step you take to reclaim your food consumption and your food habits from the toxic food culture and to make choices for real food that is healthy for your body and for your world is a step that will support you for the rest of your life. And it matters a lot more that you have healthy habits than that you be pure. So doing the perfect thing isn't as important as doing the right thing most of the time. And um, when we set the bar too high, we, we set ourselves up for failure. So try to build habits that affirm your life day in and day out. It's not about a diet. It's about a revolution. Wow. More profound wisdom. It's just one after the other. It's amazing. Um, you know, I, I'm listening to you speak, and it's really evident that you're you're very aware of the pain and the suffering that's going on in the world. And I feel like people who really embrace and embody their purpose are not afraid of the darkness. And they're because they know that moving through the darkness always reveals more light. Now, I know for myself that there are times when the darkness brings me down. It really takes me out. And I have my own ways of reconnecting to who I truly am at my core so that I can remain effective. And I'm wondering if you could share how you reconnect to yourself in those times, if you have those times that just kind of bring you down, take you out because of the pain of the world. Mm. Well, number one, I don't think the pain of the world and the pain of my own life are separate. Um, and so it's important to remember that sometimes things hurt personally, and I realize part of the reason they hurt is because they're connected to collective pain. And sometimes I'm thinking about suffering of kids in the world or people in the world, and I realize part of the reason it hurts is because I know what it's like to feel that kind of suffering and pain in my own life. So I believe that pain can be a, a doorway of connection. And if part of what we suffer from today <clears throat> is a, um, is a um, illusion of isolation and disconnection, then reconnection, as painful as it can be sometimes when pain is the doorway, can actually be sacred and beautiful. Um, for me, when I, so, so part of it is realizing that it's not bad or wrong. Um, the ability to feel pain may be a call to change something. You know, if, if my toe's hurting, it might be time to take the chair off of it, you know? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but sometimes uh, I'm still grateful that I have the sensorium to notice that that hurt. And um, so uh, similarly with frustration, often I find that when I'm feeling frustrated, I can spiral downward into resentment and defeat, or I can realize that this frustration is energy moving and it's building a charge that could propel me to actually make a change. We rarely change, make big changes if we aren't feeling big frustration first mm -hmm. or big pain first. There's got to be a reason because as creatures of habit, we tend to stick with what works unless it doesn't work. And if it really doesn't work, then that's really going to make us change in a bigger way. 
and in a context where the dominant norms are so often toxic, it is uh, a recipe for a lot of frustration for a whole lot of people. But I think that can be a catalyst. So for me, when I feel frustrated, I often think, oh, this is exciting. <laughs> what am I going to, where's the, where's the room for a breakthrough here? If I'm not content with something, that means that something better is possible. So I like to, to focus on what's, what can be instead of complaining about what, what isn't right. You know, they, there's an old saying, and I think it's so true, it's, it's always better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. <laughs> so so that, simple. that's my favorite recipe for dealing with frustration and pain is, is of course, wanting to light candles. Uh, but we may not light a candle if we don't realize it's dark. Yes. So step A is, wow, it's dark. I can't see a freaking thing. Step B is like, oh, what do I do about that? <laughs> Maybe I should light a candle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the most profound answer is always so simple. Um, yeah, there's a great saying that uh, uh, in one of, one of the courses that I took many years ago, and it's just remember, frustration always precedes growth. And when you have that conscious awareness, you're right. Frustration is actually something to be excited about because it's, it really is a launching point in most, well, in, in conscious cases for yeah. something better. Yeah, that's great. And I have one more question. And this is my final ending question, my signature question. If you had a magic wand and could wave it over the planet, what kind of world would you create? More love and less pain. More connection and less isolation. Um, I think that about sums it up for me. That was so beautiful. Thank you, Ocean. Thank you so much for, for you. Just for being you. Thanks, Deb. Thanks for being you. An absolutely beautiful interview. And I really am deeply, deeply, deeply grateful to Ocean for saying yes to this interview and for being the beautiful soul that he is, the open-hearted, vulnerable man that is a tremendous agent of change and a huge inspiration for so many people, uh, myself included. And I'm sure that after listening to this interview, if you don't know about Ocean, you do now and you'll want to stay in his life, however that may be, whether it's joining the Food Revolution Network or perhaps seeing him speak at a future event. I would love nothing more than that. Now, Ocean made it very clear that our pain can be the source of our greatest strengths. And he also asked, do we shrink away or do we expand with our pain? And if we shrink away from every source of pain, we only just get smaller and smaller and smaller. But if we expand to remember that our heart is big enough to hold every bit of pain and we can love our way through it, even if we can't fix or solve it, our hearts get bigger, our lives get bigger, our world gets bigger, and we have the capacity to make a really, really powerful contribution in the world. 
And we rarely ever consider change in our lives or deep transformation unless we are feeling a lot of pain and or frustration. And I know in my own personal life, I can certainly vouch for that. It was pain that propelled me into the person that I am today. And although it was the hardest thing that I ever experienced in my life, it's also what I owe the deepest amount of gratitude to because it woke me up. So pain can be a a tremendous awakening in our lives. And it's unfortunate that it takes something so profoundly tragic or painful or whatever the case may be in our lives to, to wake us up or to bring us to that point where we move out of the zone that we call comfortable and into the expansive limitlessness of who we're actually meant to be. And when we finally recognize that we are meant to be continually expanding beings, There are no limits. I can't even say that the sky's the limit because the sky, even in its limitlessness, is limited with who we can become. And the only ones who can determine who we're meant to be and continually become is, of course, ourselves. So once we reach one comfort zone, knowing that there's expansion on the other side, it's continually expanding and expanding, expanding. And it's so beautiful. And it's exciting and uh, it just means that life is just a, is, is like a continually, infinitely unfolding process of who we can become next. And, you know, one of the other things that uh, Ocean said that really, really struck me is the, uh, the quote that he said that it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness such simple wisdom and so deeply profound. As a matter of fact, there was just so many nuggets of incredibly meaningful wisdom to really make us all think on a deeply spiritual level of who we're meant to become and the life that we're really meant to live as we become more and more of the person that we're meant to be. And what's interesting too is that the more we become who we're meant to be, the simpler life becomes. It's so ironic because when life feels complex, it means that we're disconnected from the source of who we're really meant to be. And when life feels simple, it means that we're more connected. Now, early on in the interview, Ocean spoke about moving with the river into the ocean of oneness. And he invited listeners to explore a couple of questions. What is your river? And what is the course that's calling you deeply to become more than you could ever dream? These are the powerful questions of the week to activate your soul into inspiring you to be so much more than you are today. You know, and as I've been talking about, for all of us, there's always room for growth. And the comfort zone is, uh, is a really stretchy place. Like I said, it's, it's there for infinite growth. It's not confining. It's only confining in our minds, but in our hearts, there are no borders, no boundaries, no walls. The comfort zone is just space. Lots and lots and lots of it. Infinite growth. 
So I invite you to return to my website and share any comments, um, you know, or any questions that you might have about this interview. Just anything, anything that comes up in your heart. Just go back to my website, throw some comments on the blog and, and just share your thoughts. And when you're there, feel free to join my email list to stay on top of all of the wonderful new projects that are being created just for you and are looming just on the horizon. I tell you, there's lots and lots coming. So I, I very well recognize that the comfort zone is just open space. And so lots of stuff coming on the horizon. My only qualm is that there are only 24 hours in a day and <laughs> I, I'm very good at managing the delicate balance between being and doing. So I could easily become a doer, but I know that being is what inspires the doing. So, um, so if there were more hours in a day, I could get things done faster, but lots of cool stuff coming on the horizon. And when you head back to my website at dabozarco.com, you'll also be able to access all of Ocean's information in the show notes on his write-up in the blog section of my website. And I highly encourage you to join the Food Revolution Network and become another much-needed agent of change. And with that, I end another absolutely stellarly amazing Unplug podcast. May we continue to open our hearts on our evolutionary journey of awakening to the point where our heads can no longer make sense of it all. Thank you from deep within my heart for listening. Always, 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 always. Thank you. And remember, live with passion, live with purpose, change the world. <laughs>